Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and today our conversation is with the filmmaker and Grammy Award-winning music video director, Joseph Kahn. Chances are you're familiar with Kahn's work, even if you don't recall his name. If you're a Taylor Swift fan like myself, who's seen her music videos for Bad Blood, Blank Space, or Wildest Dreams, Kahn directed those, as well as Britney Spears' Toxic, which my girlfriend insists everyone must watch Every other year. I don't know why every other year, but that's what she says. And he's also directed videos for U2, Eminem, Katy Perry, and many other people who are way cooler than I am. But his great music videos are not why I have Khan on the show today. I'm having him on because he's the director of the new indie rap battle movie produced by Eminem. Yes, that Eminem called Bodied. The title is a reference to what happens when battlers get owned, pwned, schooled, rocked, pick your adjective, and battle rap. Bodied is a satirical film about a young, white, liberal college student at what I presume is UC Berkeley named Adam. Adam decides to write a thesis paper about the mostly minority member competitive battle rap community, but who through a twist of fate finds himself becoming a battle rapper. And I should say he becomes quite a good one at that. I mentioned the demographics here because uh, they are relevant to some of the movie's central themes, not the least of which is the collision between the subgroups that are elite liberal arts college students and battle rappers and each subgroup's different moral frameworks for looking at the world and how those frameworks you know, are in tension with each other and sometimes even with themselves. This is a movie that was made to offend everyone, as Khan says during this podcast. The battle raps are offensive. The characters are offensive. It was even offensive to me when I walked into the movie with a pen and notepad to take notes, and within the first two minutes of the movie, it makes fun of people with pens and notepads taking notes. Seriously. But this movie is not offensive for the sake of being offensive, though it's farcical and sometimes offensive look at various communities, their characters, their caricatures. Uh, The film has a lot to say about art and music, race relations, college campuses, pop culture, talking across lines of differences, and yes, free speech. One of the pivotal moments in the film actually involves a campus free speech controversy, not unlike some that we've seen here at FIRE. If you haven't already seen the movie and you're not driving in your car, I suggest you pause this podcast right now, Google Bodied Movie Trailer, that's B-O-D-I-E-D, and watch the two-minute trailer. That should give you enough of a sense of the film to follow this conversation. You don't have to have seen the film to follow this conversation, of course, but it will help. I first heard about the film, actually, from a friend who sent me an article in which Khan describes himself as a free speech absolutist. It's a Vulture article. It's mentioned in this podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes. That article pinked my interest, so I reached out to Khan on Twitter to ask him if he'd be willing to chat. Uh, 
And to my astonishment, actually, despite his having no idea who I am or what fire is, he said he'd talk to me. And on a Saturday night at 11 p.m. Eastern time, no less, it was 8 p.m. his time over on the West Coast. But that's how much he wants. And actually, he was, you know, trying to brave the wildfires that are uh, devastating California at the moment. But anyway, he talked to me on a Saturday night because that's how much he wants people to see this movie. So if you like what he has to say here, I hope you'll one, go check out the movie and two, share the movie and this podcast on social media. As you'll hear throughout the conversation, uh, Khan gets in a little bit to his background, and it's fascinating. He was born in South Korea. According to his website, he lived in Italy for a time, and he immigrated to Texas when he was seven years old. He attended NYU film school for a year before dropping out to direct low-budget music videos for gangster rappers. And then, obviously, his career took off. And it shouldn't surprise you that a guy who makes a controversial movie like Bodied has himself been embroiled in controversies. As you'll hear, he pissed off the copyright owners of the Power Rangers, yes, that Power Rangers franchise, after he self-financed a satirical fan film about the Power Rangers. Uh, He released it for free on the internet and it went viral, uh, pissing off, of course, the copywriters. I also asked him uh, during the podcast about his work on Taylor Swift's Wildest Dreams music video uh, and whether that was an inspiration for the film. Some of my pop culture nerd listeners might recall Swift and Khan took some flack uh, for the video for that song. Uh, the video depicts Swift as an actress on the set of a romantic adventure film set in Africa in the 1950s. And the video was criticized by some, not everyone, for potentially glorifying white colonialism in Africa, a claim that Khan vehemently denied at the time, and I presume would deny today. Anyway, I really enjoyed this conversation with Khan and hope you do too. Uh, Khan is in California. I'm in Virginia, and we're speaking over the internet. So if it sounds like we're speaking over the internet, we are. Now, I'm going to turn it over. onto the show. So Joseph Khan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to start out here because a lot of our listeners are attorneys, they're in academia, they're students. Many of them, I imagine, are not familiar with battle rap or battle rap culture. So can you kind of lay out what it is for our listeners who might be unfamiliar with it? Battle rap is a competitive form of hip hop where two people go in and and essentially insult each other. And whoever insults each other the best wins. And that's literally the rules. And the the, the entire mechanics of uh, who wins, who loses. I mean, it's so subjective, and um, and there's almost like no rules per se. It's anything goes. Yeah, and it's it's weird because I, I think there was a moment in in your uh, in your movie where you say that there really isn't a winner or loser anymore. I guess back in its early days there was, but. It, there's not anymore. Is that my uh, my correct understanding of it? I mean, it depends on the league. Some leagues judge it, but many don't. Um, I think even battle rap got a little sensitive as to um, winners and losers. So it's essentially a participation trophy at this point. I read somewhere that an inspiration for this movie uh, came from your experience working with Taylor Swift on her music video, Wildest Dream. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, I have to admit something. Sometimes you say things uh, and it's uh, it's palatable for the public. 
and you know that it's just going to get a lot of hits. So it's the quickest, easiest way of saying, um, you know, I am in an art form that seems to get a lot of controversy in terms of uh, just things you can and cannot say. So uh, it's kind of my code for, uh, yeah, uh, there's an offense culture out there and it's attacking the creative arts. Um, and I just sort of made an example of one of my, you know, biggest clients uh, or, or more well-known clients. And, um, and it, it just gets a lot of press. Uh, I don't really mean to do it that way, but it was just an example. But it's, it's bigger than Taylor Swift, obviously. It's, it's the overall feeling that you can't say anything and you have to be super careful um, in the arts now. And did you want to make a movie about that or did you want to make a movie about battle rap? And then that was just a topic that you saw in the culture at the moment. And you applied that topic to a movie about battle rap that perhaps you had always wanted to make. Here's the funny thing about being an artist. Your motivations switch and change according to the wind. You know, So mm-hmm. a long time ago, I wanted to make a battle rap movie and I gave up on it because I just didn't know what to say. But then um, as we got into like, you know, the mid 2010s to around 2015. And I saw how people were protesting on college campuses and, and free speech was turning into this very controversial concept among the youth. Um, I wanted to make a movie about that. But then I realized that battle rap exists where it, it is uh, the most uninhibited version of free speech. And I, you know, that's what you do in the creative arts. You, you combine two ideas to make, you know, you know a statement. And, and were you a fan of battle rap before making this movie or was it just kind of a, a, a side interest that you then explored a lot more when you decided or when you understood the kind of <laughs> the free speech aspects of it? I, I'm a huge fan of battle rap in general. Um, I think there is a point, though, when you watch enough battle raps that it starts getting a little repetitive. And at first, sort of the uh, the racial, sexual, um, you know, like just like the dicey parts of it are like really fun to watch, but then it gets repetitive and you hear the same jokes over and over again. Then you get a little bit less interested in it. And then it starts getting uh, like, it, it's almost like a soap opera where you have to keep track of people. And uh, cause like two people go up against each other and then they start spitting rhymes about each other's personal lives that you don't even care about. So there, there's an element to it that I've always liked, which is the pure creativity and the form, just like Adam does in the movie where yeah. he's just into the, into the actual uh, poetry of it. Uh, but in terms of like, you know, super deep into every little detail battle rap that, uh, I, I kind of hopped out of it a couple years ago. Adam has, has a girlfriend named Maya and she goes with them to one of these battle raps and she is kind of offended by everything that happens there. And then there's a moment in the movie where they all go to this dinner party and they get in this offended, offendedness sweepstakes when, Adam talks about the battle rap. Someone says that, you know, it's discriminatory and based on gender and all these other things. And then there's kind of a showstopper moment where they say, well, you're othering this culture. This is a, you know, a unique subculture. And, uh, you know, it's I don't know exact. I don't remember what exactly what it said, but it, it seems as though there's like this philosophical or moral ambiguity and no one really knows what their stand because their tensions between their tensions with like minority rights and minority perspectives is in tension with their views of gender and race concerns. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, it's funny whenever anyone criticizes the film for its politics, they usually pick out that scene specifically, which is really funny because it, they find that the representation of these uh, basically white kids in college, they think are, is very um, over the top. And, um, 
and and uh, a, a a bit extreme uh, and um and perhaps uh, uh just uh you know just a, f- a little bit too farcical. But the reality is, like you know, from the white perspective, that may seem that way. But you know, quite frankly, a lot of our characters uh, in sort of the brown world are also kind of farcical too. Like you know, the Shay character, uh, the the horny Latino guy. Uh, yeah, those guys exist, but you know, he's done it to an extreme in our movie just as much as the white kids are. So it's funny when people criticize specifically that we're sort of having a bone to pick about like the white kids in that uh, collegiate area when we're actually doing it to everybody. Um, and that's the other thing about the movie that's really funny is that people will go, yeah, I laughed at 90% of it, but the 10% of the issues that are pertaining to me, I did not laugh at. Therefore the movie is terrible, but here's the thing. It's not that you know, 90% of the movie is acceptable and 10% is unacceptable. 100% of the movie is offensive. It's designed to be 100% offensive. Your 10% uh, doesn't mean anything in the, in the grand scheme of what we're trying to do here. So, well, that's um, a, so go ahead. No, well, that's a weird thing about reviews these days. It seems as though in order for a work to be judged positively, it has to check off the reviewer's moral and political priors. Like there's there's no room for moral ambiguity yeah, it seems in a lot of the and how how we're reviewing works today and and even not just the work itself. You're looking at the background of the the person who created it as well. It could be it could be Shakespearean in its artistic excellence, but if Shakespeare uh, is a less than moral person, then the work is is no longer good. Um, I I think when it comes down to the morals of a movie, I find it very interesting that people like wonder what bodied morals are right but mm-hmm. I, you know to me that's a very strange question to ask of art as if like art is supposed to have a lesson in it a specific moral like we're taught in school that uh, that art has a specific moral or it's a failure but why can't art just be a simulation of things why can't it be a dialectic why can't it be uh, basically a, a part of a socratic method of just asking a series of questions and then the audience decides what the moral is why do i have to give you the moral and because quite frankly I'm just a dude. I'm just an, like an Asian dude with a camera. Like I don't have the answers to life. You know, like people want me to like literally through what a two hour movie, give you an answer on race relations. I don't have that answer. I'm sorry. What I'm doing is I'm just demonstrating the questions that are out there in, in the best way possible that a film can do, which is from a emotional point of view, a subjective point of view and give you different perspectives. You guys can debate what you want out of it. But, you know, hopefully by giving you the the power of subjectivity that film can do, um, it, it can give you a perspective on things that maybe you didn't have before. You can literally enter someone else's head through filmmaking, which I think is the fun part of Bodied. You get to see different sides of different perspectives. And just when you think you're getting comfortable with one, we flip it and give you another perspective. That's the gift of Bodied. Yeah. And I went into it wanting it to be a full-throated defense of free speech. But there were two moments in the movie that sort of stuck out me, stuck out at me and made me kind of like question not not the value of free speech writ large, but just the power of speech. There's this moment where Adam's counterpart, uh, Ben, and I got that name correct, right? Yeah. When Ben tells Adam that words have consequences and Adam had previously sort of forgotten that was something he had done in the movie. And again, I don't want to spoil it. And I think for a lot of us in the free speech movement, we forget that words do have consequences and we're not empathetic with people who who can f- – words are powerful. If they weren't powerful, I wouldn't seek to defend them. And 
it's too easy for us to forget that. And then there's also a moment in the movie when Maya, Adam's girlfriend, is presenting a thesis. And the thesis topic is, you know, about white racism coded as free expression. And for those of us in the free speech movement, we don't want to kind of accept that, yeah, that sometimes happens. There are situations, for example, when a someone goes on a free speech tour and really the purpose of that tour is not to defend the principle of free speech, but is rather to defend the principle of, uh, you know, or their, their protest against gender neutral bathrooms, which is something that actually happened in North Carolina. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Like if you want to hear a little bit of a cheat code to the movie from, from the author uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not the purest author because I'm a director who co-wrote it with uh, Alex Larson, who's an actual battle rapper. So he's got a lot of his perspective in there. But from my point of view, I'm a free speech absolutist. I absolutely believe in the First Amendment. I, I think that you should be able to say what you need to say. Um, uh, and I think that if you don't have free speech, like our democracy is worthless. Like a democracy without an informed debating public is just mob rules. Like just uh, just a bunch of people that decided, you know, the, the country go, should go one way with no debate. <laughs> That's mob rule. So uh, I, th- I think ultimately – uh, I am a free speech absolutist, but all I'm doing here also is demonstrating that, you know, free, regardless of free speech, you can still be an asshole. You know, just because you have the right to say things doesn't mean that you're also right in general. You can also still be an asshole at the end of the day. But I, you know, like as Voltaire said, you can be an asshole and I have, I'll defend your right to be an asshole. I mean, I didn't quite say it that way. but you know. Yeah. And it was um, actually, it was actually his bio, <laughs> interesting trivia. If you're uh, ever at a bar, yeah, I know, I know it's, it's, it's supposedly it wasn't him. It was like, it was uh, someone else who said it, but yeah. Evelyn Beatrice Hall. Yeah. But I mean, I, th- I think the, other thing also is that in the context of uh, like the Maya debates and stuff like that, um, it, it's it's an interesting thing. Like a lot of this movie does stem, going back to one of your earlier things, from personal experience. It's motivated by a certain sense of rage that I had around 2015 where I was on Twitter and I like to make a lot of jokes. That's literally what I do most of the time. I just I just make I take the piss out of things. Right. And I kept pissing off people left and right. But the the way it used to be is that if you piss somebody off, it used to be that one person would get mad and maybe two or three would engage with you. But now with Twitter and being a public persona as I am, I would get hundreds of people like literally on any given day. And they would tell me to kill myself. Uh, you're racist. You're this or that. I mean, whatever like was the, the meme of the day in terms of what they, they thought my per- particular joke was, I would get dogpiled. And that's a whole new sensation. That's a whole new thing. And I started realizing that we are now in uncharted territory where uh, social media has allowed to link in like people that were essentially possibly losers in high school at some point. Like, here's an example, right? Like, I feel like a lot of people that attack me specifically because I do music videos are teenagers. A lot of them are like teenage girls or what have you. And in their particular school, there might be one or two Lady Gaga fans, right? And within the schools, they're they're not powerful. It's just like any school has a series of bullies and whatever. And like, they're just like a kind of an offshoot of it, right? But once they get on Twitter and the social media sphere, they all link up and suddenly they become a voice of like 50 million kids or whatever it is. And, uh, and then if you have one person who makes a Lady Gaga joke that goes astray, suddenly you've got like a million people like pouncing on you. And I, I don't know if that uh, like is is relevant in terms of how you perceive uh, the world from your lawyerly perspective. But what I see from a pop culture perspective is there's a sort of dogpiling pushing of agendas 
that that that's that come from the most asinine places like for instance in this case it's just 14 year old girls that linked up uh, on lady gaga fandoms to beat up a 45 year old video director you know and so that sort of weird new world of uh, of uh of uh language policing um it's a weird place to be as an artist. Cause now like whenever you like want to even tweet out a joke, you're thinking like, who am I going to offend? Uh, what teenager is out there that's going to blow it up. And, and here's the, here's the funny part too. I've seen it where like the teenagers are the ones that are offended, but then the adults and the, the editors of these like blogs and magazines, they take it seriously and they're not even paying attention to exactly who the, the, uh, the dogpiling is. Um, and it, it just extends out and suddenly it becomes the actual news and the reality and it becomes part of the fabric of how we communicate now. And now everybody's on pins and needles when sometimes I think it's just coming from like little kids, like trying to bully other people. And then suddenly the adults sort of get the ramifications and now the adults act that way too. Does that make sense at all? No, no, it does make sense. And I used to have this, this, I thought that social media was the great hope for us. Uh, you believe in fr- freedom of expression. You give everyone the tools to speak out. The world is going to be a better place. I thought this around the Arab Spring and back in 2011. But now you're you're seeing the developments, uh, the the uh, the dark side, the devilish side of social media, and you're seeing this sort of mob outrage culture. And I've gotten off Twitter in a large part because I think it brings out the worst in me and also the worst in others. So I, I always ask people who are very involved with it, like, what is, what is the benefit you see in being on there? Obviously, it helps you promote your movies, but do you see another benefit to it? No, I, I, there's literally no other benefit for me than other than it's a it's a way to promote. And if I am not on it, I literally cannot get work. So I'm kind of like, it's my ball and chain. I, it's it's For instance, there's no way anybody would know about Bodied if it weren't for Twitter. Period. How did you find out about Bodied? I found out about it uh, because a friend of mine who works at the New York Times, and his name will go uh, unstated, forwarded me that. I think it was the Vulture or Variety article where you talk a lot about freedom of speech because he knew I was very interested in the topic. And then I was just in New York City uh, for work and I I swung by the AMC theater there and checked it out. Uh, So your your movie is going around kind of the free speech subculture, uh, though niche though it may be. uh, And that's how I found out about it. Well, I'll tell you how that sort of works in terms of how I even got to the Vulture article. It's that over the years, um, I don't have a ton of Twitter followers, but I have a lot of reporters following me. I did a movie um, in 2015 on the internet called Power Rangers. I don't know if you saw it. It was a short film. Uh, no, I saw it uh, pinned to the top of your Twitter account, but I haven't actually watched it, no. You should see the f- uh, the story behind Power Rangers because what I did around 2014, I secretly made a fan film about the Power Rangers. I don't care. I don't give a fuck about the Power Rangers, by the way. <laughs> like, like, all I wanted to do was I knew that Hollywood was going to come out with a Power Rangers uh, movie at some point. So uh, I literally took $250,000 of my own cash and made a short film, just blew it, like, like just mm-hmm. for no other reason. I knew I was never going to get any of this money back. And I just made a, uh, an NC-17 version of the Power Rangers where they sniffed coke and did hookers and blew each other's brains out, right? <laughs> yeah. And then waited for a year. I worked on it for a year in secret. And then in 2015, I just released it one night. And I, and I released it at midnight because I knew it was going to get shut down, right? And by the morning, it had like 10 million views and Saban Entertainment and all the people that own it were like freaked out and threatened to sue me and stuff like that. But I, I did actually make it as a free speech idea in that if I had made it as um, as a legitimate Power Rangers thing as a franchise property. Right. Um, you know, they could sue me for real. But here's the here's what I did. 
I made it for free. I literally just made it and I made zero profit off it. It's as if like I drew the Power Rangers, drew it on a napkin and then showed it on the internet and I made no money off it. They can't sue me over that, right? So literally the movie companies were in a weird position because here's a guy who made a extremely popular fan film about the Power Rangers, um, but made no profit off it. So is that free speech? Or am I, uh, or am I doing IP um, property law uh, like problems? You obviously, are, you know, have ruffled some feathers with Bodied and the Power Rangers thing. Is there any concern that it might affect your career? Especially, my sense you work in Hollywood, which often some sometimes embodies the characteristics that you lampoon in uh, the campus culture that you you depict in your movie. Can I tell you the honest truth since we're a free speech thing? And, yeah, of course. And, and, you know, the policing of it can be done in two ways. One is that you can police the, someone because you're being super offensive. But then there's another part. You're policing someone because you're being super arrogant, right? Well, mm-hmm. let me show you the arrogant side of myself. I, I've never worried about whether I offend anybody in Hollywood because I'm that fucking good. You know, like, I, I, <laughs> like I feel I'm that good of a filmmaker that they always want me no matter what. And I don't really care. You know, like they're going to yeah. want my skill set um, irrespective of what all, all this craziness I do, because I still am the best person to go to. If you want to sell a car, I'm the guy. If you want to sell a song, I'm the guy. You know, and eventually one day, if you want to make a superhero, I'm the guy. I feel that confident about my skill set. So I'm not quite frankly worried about offending people because I'm that good. Yeah, it's it's to get away with it these days. You either have to have fuck you money or fuck you talent. Other than that, your career could just be over. Yeah. And um, I just can't concern myself. You know, and quite frankly, uh, I just look, I'm an Asian dude that grew up in Texas in the 80s. Okay. And, and, and what that means is I saw real racism in the eighties. Like, remember the civil rights act was in the sixties, right? Like by the time I got to America in like 1979, it was just like 10 years. Like, so right now we're in 2018, the, the, the racial dynamics of what's going on right now are quite different than it was like back in the eighties In the eighties, it was really sort of like out there. I remember like I would go into my elementary school and kids would line up and make fun of my eyes and do ching chong sounds. And that would be my daily basis, right? So what ended up happening is that I'm getting this very, very thick skin. So now when I see like an Asian person just getting mad over one little joke, it's like, like you know, it's a bit insensitive of me. I, I understand this. I, I love my Asian people and all that stuff. But at the same time, there's peace that goes, get over it. It's like, like you had nothing compared to what I had to go through, you know? So Yeah, there's... I, there's this one of the biggest advocates for free speech in the community right now is this guy named Simon Tan. He's uh, an Asian American and he's the lead bass player of the band The Slants. And they had a case that went all the way up to the Supreme Court because the Patent and Trademark Office refused to let them trademark their name The Slants because it was derogatory. But they were using the phrase to sort of kind of reappropriate it for positive for a positive yeah. message. And uh, so, yeah, it's just the it's just interesting how. Uh, the Asian American community has kind of gotten behind that his cause. I'm friends well, with him on Facebook, so I see what he does. I guess so. I mean, it's, it's, I think when it comes down to um, being offended, it's such a complicated bag because I think a certain level of offense is so good for the dialogue. Uh, I think that if you you're not testing what is offending people, then you you have a you have a stasis of conformity, and that is never good in society. I think that uh, shock comics and shock humor and 
and um, ideas that push the edge and make people feel uncomfortable. This is what art should be doing. Uh, it should be. Uh, it's a fun experience. And the minute we try to shut all that stuff down, uh, we're going to be in we're going to be in a world of shit uh, because nothing good's going to come of that when a bunch of people start thinking in conformist terms. Yeah, there is. A, I, I helped make a documentary back in 2015 called Can We Take a Joke? And it's about comedy and uh, this the comedian Lenny Bruce, who was put in jail for the jokes he was telling back in the 60s and, and what parallels you can draw between modern uh, free speech controversies in the comedy community and the ones historically where previously it was the police, now it's the mob. Uh, and the New York Times reviewed the movie. And in the lead, they said the documentary, Can We Take a Joke, does a fine job of defending a comic's right to perform incendiary material. But it would be better if it also at least acknowledged the possibility that some jokes ought not to be told, which suggests to me that the reviewer completely did not understand the movie in the same way some of the reviewers you were talking about earlier didn't understand your movie either. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't. uh, By the way, I would never say they don't understand my movie. They just have their own interpretations of it, because if they if they didn't understand, that means that I literally have a a very, very hardcore specific intent with the movie and my. uh, the only real intent I had was to spark a debate. I mean, it's as simple as that. And um, some people are- Yeah, we uh, had an intent. So yeah, I guess that's the difference. Yeah, I mean, like uh, like some people are down with the, that concept of a movie like that, but other people just want morals. Like, And it's really funny what they think morals in Hollywood movies are, because at the end of the day, for me personally, these morals are so simple. Like think about the vast majority of morals in movies. Are these things that you haven't heard before? Do not kill, you know, do not cheat. You know, even something like slavery, slavery is bad. Duh, of course, you know. Um, But when you have a movie like Body, which says maybe racist jokes aren't racist, you know, how do you how how does like the world today sort of figure that one out? You know, it's not quite a moral. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a dialogue. So you were talking earlier about what you were seeing on college campuses, how tuned in to those controversies were you? Because obviously you're satirizing some of these free speech controversies and you're, you know, kind of being hyperbolic with it. But in other ways, I'm thinking and reflecting on some of the cases that, that I've been involved in with my, in my career here at fire. And they're not always, uh, they're, they're, they sometimes do match that, that case precisely. Like I think back to Evergreen state college in Washington state last year and that the elite sort of liberal culture was on display there. And it, Almost the exact same way it was on display in uh, in the college in your movie. Well, Nico, here's here's a here's a big issue for me. Okay, like uh, you know, uh, over the course of my life, uh, you know, coming from Texas, one of the things that I always was was essentially an atheist, right? Like coming from Texas, you're being plopped right into the Bible Belt, and you have to make a hardcore decision as an immigrant: Are you going to fit into the sort of Christian landscape that is very blatantly like put out there and, and that social mechanism of going to church every Sunday and doing and praying in school and all that stuff. Well, I, I also wanted to be a scientist when I was growing up. So this stuff just didn't correlate to me on a mathematical scientific level. So I, I was an atheist. Um, and if you just sort of like fast forward a couple of years later, I, I was, I was like really into a lot of the sort of the atheist movements, uh, the Sam Harris's, the Christopher Hitchens, you know, and, and that was really kind of like the pre- like the genesis of, of my interest in speech only because it was like atheists feeling 
you know, like they, they can finally say that they're an atheist, which was a, a big movement back then, which which for someone that came from Texas was very fascinating. Because I remember thinking, even as a kid, will I ever get a girlfriend because I don't believe in God and everybody here believes in God and Jesus and all that stuff, right? So it yeah. was liberating from that perspective. But then it started turning into other things like the, the right to criticize Christianity. And of course, when 9-11 happened, it turned into the right to criticize Islam, which then there was a whole lot of uh, liberal backlash against that idea, like because it started to become the intersection between, you know, um, atheism uh, versus maybe, you know, like actual racism, you know, and mm-hmm. xenophobia and all that. And it got very muddled at, at a certain point. And now it seems like a lot of my atheist heroes have turned into free speech advocates uh, specifically like Sam Harris is because now it's like there's the left is essentially protecting its turf. And we've gotten to a point where uh, the, the sort of uh, interpersonal tribalism has sort of expanded everywhere. But the danger for me, by the way, is as a free speech absolute as who, who, who loves like Sam Harris and things like that. uh, There is still this other element where I see now uh, the free speech people now courting a little bit, with like, like the Fox News people, which is a little strange because they feel that the left has gone so bonkers. Like a Sam, who's that guy's uh, uh, Dave Rubin, right? Yeah, Dave Rubin. Yeah, the YouTube guy. Yeah, in the beginning he was like interesting to me because he was like talking to all the same people, but now it's like you can actually see him go on Fox News and he's like definitely like like instigating a lot of things that are almost pro-Trump and like in his best. It seems like he's hand in hand now with Fox News. So there's a little bit of a. Um, there's a little bit of like a warning spot for me where uh, I, I'm a little I'm a little uh, hesitant to like hop into either either side because it seems like it, it, it they're they're branching off to like these extreme politics no matter what I don't think Sam is by the way but like but you can see like a like a piece of the free speech movement um, sort of aligning itself with like the alt right um, simply because it's the um, they're kind of like easy adversaries right now, but I see hypocrisy there because the alt-right could easily do the same fucking thing. Um, if they had their ways, you know, like they don't want, they don't want Kaepernick fucking kneeling, you know, uh, like as much as they keep talking about their free speech, they have their own issues of things that you can and cannot say. So, well, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out who is the true civil libertarian who, who defends the neutral principles principles, which is really what, being a civil libertarian is all about and who's kind of out to just own the libs, so to speak, like Milo Yiannopoulos. He he pays good lip service to free speech, but when the rubber hits the road, I don't know that he'd go to the mat to defend a liberal's right. Yeah, look, and I I have no interest in owning the libs. You know, I am liberal. You know, at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. like all my personal politics, uh, you know, I believe in uh, free speech. I also believe in uh, freedom of religion. I believe in, you know, uh, pro-choice, you know, like uh, pro-homosexuality. I mean, do whatever you want to do. But uh, what I do think is that the sort of overboardness of – of uh, nitpicking um, and uh, and especially the sort of uh, attempt, especially on the college campus side of things, to uh, to stop the conversation simply because you feel righteous. That's not cool. Have you tried to get this movie shown on college campuses? I'm just kind of curious how it would play out. So so two months ago, I went to Stanford to, to just speak about filmmaking. And um, they wanted me to show the film there. And I absolutely did not show the film because I um, I just felt like all the professors that, that like me would get fired, quite frankly. 
And really? So it was a professor who invited you to show the film. Yeah. And, and they're sweet. They're awesome. They're, they're really cool. Um, and I, I, I actually do like academics. Look, look, I'm an Asian person. So like for me, like, you know, academics and science and, and, and getting degrees, that's all really cool stuff as a, as a stupid Asian that dropped out of college to make like funny films. Like, like I'm still in awe of people that actually have degrees, you know? So going yeah. on college, the, the one thing that I kept thinking is that I just don't want them to get fired because one student can say, suddenly say they showed a movie where they're saying the F word and the N word and without context, next thing you know, as you've seen in Evergreen and things like that, boom, it's in the school paper and people lose their jobs. So I was super, super careful about that, you know, but irrespective of that, like there still was controversy because uh, telling the story of how I made the movie, um, the, I, I brought up one example. The movie itself is about stereotypes and, um, and, and, and just perspectives that, that may be racist, but they're not racist. And it's just that, that intersection of all that stuff. Right. So yeah. I was telling you one story about like when I was casting a movie, there was a stereotype that I realized that I had that I didn't have, that I didn't realize it. And the stereotype was when I was casting for black rappers, I thought most black guys could rap. <laughs> like, and that was a stereotype. It turned out to be completely untrue. And I actually shocked myself that that I had this perspective that I had walking in my system for the last 30 years. I just kind of assumed that all black guys could rap because I always see black guys rapping. Whenever I talk to my black friends, they can rap and things like that. But it turned out to be uh, I just happened to be in a subset of people that work in the record industry where people are more musically inclined. Right. And then when you go to actors who are not necessarily musically inclined, they can't rap. Anyways, I said that and that turned into a firestorm. Like one student thought I was being so racist saying that. And the funny thing is I was critiquing my own racism. And the next thing you know, like she was writing a letter and it, it turned into a mess. Uh, you can't even do that the, these days. You can't even be candid and honest with your own failings. I, I reflect back on post 9-11. I forget what year exactly. But Juan Williams, the former NPR anchor, had talked about how you know he gets a little bit nervous when he sees someone in a hijab go on an airplane. And he was saying it as a way to like critique himself and say, I have stereotypes. I have prejudice. I am wrong. But there was the, a firestorm that happened after that as well that resulted in him eventually leaving NPR. So you can't, I mean, it's, we're being cowed into silence in certain respects. I mean, this is, this is the, this is the really bad part of, uh, of uh, trying to bully your way into your point as opposed to actually having debate. Look, I, I've always said that um, Trump himself is a battle rapper. And what I mean, and what I mean by that, if you listen to the vernacular and the things he says, I mean he's insulting people. He's getting personal. He's he's doing what we call personals constantly, and he's he's punching low, and and he's and it's and the truth doesn't matter. He's just literally just punching away. And in order to beat him, you're going to need a battle rapper. Um, if you don't bring a battle rapper to it, um, you're going to lose constantly especially to the red states that vote for him. And here's the problem. We don't have battle rappers on the left anymore because we're just coddled. We don't want to fight. We just want to win our arguments simply by, de by deplatforming somebody. And that makes lazy arguments. The reality is you need to have a battle rapper up there. You need to have the skill set of a good debater who can take on a Trump, you know, uh, for instance, Ben Shapiro, right? Ben Shapiro yeah. is kicking a lot of uh, lefty ass right now because he's a debater, you know, um, you know, if you want to defeat Ben Shiro, don't deplatform him, debate him and beat him. I actually saw Sam Harris beat him once, by the way. Um, and it was specifically and those two guys are in a sort of a interesting sort of contentious truce because they both love free speech or they're both advocates of war. Uh, but they both have very different political views and specifically on religion. Right. 
uh, as much as Ben Shapiro says, um, what, what's his what's his sta- statement? Um, like uh, facts don't care about your feelings or whatever. Uh, yeah, is yeah. That, is that what he says? No, that's ben, that, yeah, that's Ben Shapiro. Yeah, it says facts don't care about your feelings, right? Well, as an atheist, well, his God is nothing but feelings. That's why there's no facts supporting his God, right? So when he debated Sam Harris, and there's one clip of it for seven minutes, I felt I felt like Sam Harris wiped the floor with them. It's only a few times I've ever seen that happen, you know. So I feel that these sort of conservative uh, thinkers that that are very willing to get into like these battle raps can be defeated if you you have a you have the uh, the person on the left that has been battle rapping too, but we don't have that right now because um, we're just too afraid of uh, debating. Well, there seems to be a generational divide on this issue and many other issues that might be termed civil libertarian. But if you hear people like uh, Bernie Sanders, I think people have a right to speak and you have a right. If you're on a college campus, not to attend, you have a right to ask hard questions about the speaker. If you disagree with him or her, but what, what, why should we be afraid of somebody coming on a campus or any place else and speaking? You have a right to protest. Or Barack Obama. You know, I, I don't agree that you, when you become students at colleges, have to be coddled and protected from different points of view. Or Van Jones. I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. Chime in on these campus free speech controversies. They're kind of aghast at the efforts by some on the progressive left to try and deplatform certain speakers. They're like, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid of their arguments? Like these are easy arguments to defeat. And to the extent that there is a certain subset of people who believe them, you have to defeat them. That's how democracy works. But there's a younger generation that's not buying into that as much, at least that's my perception, because it can seem to cause emotional trauma for them, these people who they don't want on campus to even make the arguments. You know what it is? It's um, Gen X and baby boomers are terrible parents, like coddling your kids. Like we're just (laughs) terrible, terrible parents. And what I saw was like at Stanford, the girl must have been only 18, 19 years old. And she felt so entitled um, uh, to to sort of like be offended uh, that she 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 felt she felt there was a, you can sense that there was like a sense of power to uh, to her position. And the next thing you know, the, uh, the professors are reactive to it and they're confused. They're they're debating it. They're they're trying to understand it. But at the end of the day, um, it's one 18 year old person super offended about one particular point that she, that quite frankly, she's just wrong about. And uh, and the entire campus reacts for it, you know, and if that's just one particular case, it's going across the country right now. And I don't think that is a positive way to to build your next big battle rapper that can defeat the conservatives if, if you want, if you're uh, pro liberal, you know. Yeah, well, some of the, some of the words you use there, like parenting and coddling. My my boss, Greg Lukianoff, just wrote a book with Jonathan Haidt called "The Coddling of the American Mind: How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation of Failure." And he he points to how we're raising kids, or they point to how we're raising kids as one of the precise reasons you're seeing this because kids are often being raised to go seek a third party to mediate disputes. You don't have free play anymore, for example, which is how kids are often socialized. So when they go to campus, their parents aren't there anymore. They're looking for perhaps an administrator to you know, mediate their dispute. And as a result, democracy loses. Well, can I also tell you, there's, there's also, 
look, I, I'm an Asian dude, and I only mention that from the identity politics point of view to mm-hmm. to to want to sort of explain to you that like I'm not part of like the the white guilt culture. Okay, <laughs> like it's so, like I don't feel guilty about being an Asian dude at all. You know. Yeah. So what I see is that there's a lot of white guilt in um, in the liberal world, right? Um, and it really does cast this crazy weird, like you know, as much as Fox News keeps saying you're being racist, like like to to liberals, you know, what they're really saying is, and the deep core of it uh, is that you have um, a like a like a low expectation of brown people, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, you're afraid that you say one thing that that it will literally demolish everyone's egos uh, because of your superiority or something like that. You know, um, some of that might actually be true because there is a certain tension, obviously, between, um, you know, like minority cultures and sort of like mainstream white culture. But there are there are other viewpoints from other minorities. Um, and I think you'll probably find that more in the Asian world, quite frankly, because we um, we're kind of kicking ass financially in America. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of have less of a problem with it, you know? Uh, and you also look at the statistics of like, you know, like 50% of all Asians inter- interracial marry, specifically the white people mm. and stuff like that. You know, the, the funny thing is when we, when we tested bodied, um, um, like using the NRG service, they, they listed out black, um, Hispanic, and then white slash Asian. So they didn't give Asians uh, our, own, our own thing. They just like lumped us in with white people. You know? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I thought that was very interesting. Um, but yeah, so I think there's a certain level of like white guilt. Um, and God bless you. It's it's kind of cool. You know, like it's nice to know that they're like white people who have emotions and care and all that shit. Otherwise, it's uh, you, what you're left with is the Trump people. Right. Uh, so it's admirable on a certain level, but it's also kind of highly uh, insulting. Um, patronizing because, yeah it's, it's patronizing it's um it's 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 what bodied is about on a certain level that sort of patronizing perspective of race uh, relations where um where, where you're just kind of like uh, inadvertently looking down on on other people's expectations well that's one of the things that our approach to free speech on campus at fire is we make what we call the strong student argument that students are not too weak to live in freedom or live with freedom, I should say. And to the extent in recent years, we've seen students say that words are violence or words are, can cause me trauma and to have certain words or certain ideas expressed on campus. will not just, you know, uh, you know, hurt me emotionally, but it can have a physical manifestation in me kind of works against our strong student model. Uh, they used to be the best constituency for us on campus, but I, I don't know. I see that changing and it worries us because we want, we see ourselves as defending the rights of these students. We've always operated under the impression that they want this sort of freedom. I know it's a little weird, um, but like, look, what I am is a pop culture dealer. You know, uh, the drug that I sell is pop culture. And I've seen an interesting thing in terms of how we market pop culture to kids and it's, it's happened gradually over um, the last 10, 15 years. It used to be that when you want to market to kids, you just say they're cool and here's some mm-hmm. sex, right? <laughs> so it's kind of an easy formula. But somehow over the last 10 years, it became – remember like when Lady Gaga first came out and she was all about self-empowerment and, and uh, gay rights and, and finding yourself and you know born this way and all that stuff, right? Oh, yeah. It's not an original thought. And Madonna was doing that in the 80s. 
But when Madonna did it, I feel like it came from a more honest place because it was more dangerous to take up gay rights in the 80s. Nobody wanted to hear that shit, especially with AIDS and things like that, right? It was a big taboo. And then Madonna was in there and she's like having sex with black guys on crosses and, you know, making out with other women in, in, in hotels and coming out with sex books and, and really sort of liberating that perspective. But in like, and by the way, I'm part of the Lady Gaga business. Uh, I've done a couple <laughs> videos. For her her latest know? movie is great. I, I saw it. And I was like crying at the end. I thought it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So, well, let's get back to uh, the bad part of Lady Gaga. Right. Okay. Uh, I, I think there was a commercialization of, um, of self-improvement. Um, that that felt more like Deepak Chopra than than actual m- movement in terms of uh, uh, it, it became more of a it became more of like a hipster sort of perspective of of fashion fashion as identity you know or identity mm-hmm. as fashion and I think a lot of the meaning got taken away and then the tribalism along with social media created these pockets of people now essentially fighting for their own individuality but but you're not individuals because you're not linking up with millions of other people that think just like you, you know, if you were like truly an individual and you were like off social media and you were like trans and you're this, or you're gay or you're Asian or whatever, that's a much tougher thing to do than suddenly you have this collection of people patting yourself and, and, uh, and pressing like and retweeting you and all that stuff. It, it became this collective mob mentality. It, um, and then it, it pervaded into advertising everywhere. I mean, I, I, I don't know how many, advertising you've ever seen of like people like like in documentary style being narrated about how great they are and how fearless they are it's like every commercial is like that it's it's now it's like the the entire idea of identity politics and by the way when when you guys say identity politics you're talking about race or sexual things or whatever right when i say identity politics, generally yeah from from my perspective as a pop culture dealer it's just literally the idea of selling the self as the final option in any particular demographic, you know, like making yourself so important as an individual that, uh, that you become the, the, the final product itself. You know, you're no longer selling Coca-Cola, you're selling you like you're just directly tapping into the ego. And, uh, and I think it's caused a, a quite a bit of havoc in terms of how we, uh, now perceive things because we're now so tribal that we're all essentially marking territory and, uh, and and trying not to uh, trying not to let anybody have any piece of it. Like our 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 little in, invisible social sphere is the fight now that we're all fighting for. The you 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 were talking there about how Lady Gaga and Madonna were kind of trying to do the same thing, but it was more transgressive when Madonna did it. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. When you think about art, whether it be music or movies, like. Who is transgressive these days in mainstream filmmaking or in mainstream music? It seems to me that you don't see the same transgression that you saw with the punk rockers back in the day or with Madonna and back in the day. And I've heard other people actually say that like the alt-right is the new are the new punk rockers. Now I don't know that I agree with that, but to the extent they're a minority culture uh, that are having some sort of effect or riling the morals of the moral majority, that might be true. Now, I'll tell you who's transgressive. It's battle rap um, and maybe hip hop in general. And the reason why is this rock and roll is dead. You know this, right? Like, like nobody sells rock records anymore. Um, Not since the darkness. No, <laughs> I know. And the reason why is because they took the sex out of it because like white people, you <laughs> are so yep. afraid of sex and offending each other uh, that you literally took the fucking sex out of rock and roll. Now rock and roll is a dead thing. Your kids do not want to listen to rock and roll because you can't fuck the rock and roll. 
but you can fuck to hip hop. You can have sex to uh, Cardi B. You can have sex to Jay Z. You can have sex to Beyonce. You know that they're still primal and fun and 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 honest because like when you're a teenager, you know you know you're not thinking. Well, you're thinking about politics and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, as a teenager, your hormones are raging and you want to fuck. You know, like and you're trying to deal with ways to uh, to to get that or circumvent it or uh, you know turn it into love or whatever you want to do. But ultimately, like the human body is saying reproduce and that is the core of music. Music is a rhythm of reproduction. You know, it, there are fertility dances involved in music. And um, have you seen uh, those studies lately that say that this generation of kids is drinking less, is smoking less, is having sex less than previous generations. I have to uh, think that's tied in here somewhere. I think white kids are doing that less, you know, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but here's the truth too. Hip hop would not be as big if white kids weren't buying that stuff either. Mm. You know, like, yeah. you, you, like, you know, like crazy rich Asians, for instance, right? Like it's not Asians who made that film successful. We're only 3% of the American population. We could buy out every fucking theater constantly and it wouldn't make a dent in terms of the box office. White people fucking made that movie a hit, you know, and white people make hip hop a hit. You know, it's, it's not the 15% of black people in America fucking like buying all those records. It's the fucking 60% of white people that will flood that market and put in all the dollars, you know? So, uh, so no, like I think that, um, whatever they say about um, like kids having sex and all that less, I, I, I tend to sort of uh, have a, uh, uh, a distrust of those figures because I just know how human beings work. And, <laughs> and also at the end of the day, um, uh, you know, uh, the, hip hop is the biggest thing in the world and hip hop is all about sex you know, <laughs> yeah. at, at, at its core. So how do people see this movie? Uh, people can see this movie in theaters. Um, unfortunately, um, I got to tell you, um, it's very hard to see this movie because uh, everybody was so afraid to release it. Huh. You want to hear a little backstory behind it? I'd um, love to. When I made this movie, um, like I sent it to like every film festival, Sundance, um, like, you know, to like, uh, like uh, Toronto, like not Toronto. I got accepted there. To, uh, Sundance to try. And you won an award there. Yeah. You know, like literally all the major film festivals turned it down because they were all afraid it was racist because it said racist things. But just because it says racist things doesn't mean it's racist. You know, it's just that mm-hmm. they literally couldn't understand that the people laughing at this stuff uh, um, were actually going to be other people of those races. Right. And it wasn't until Toronto accepted the film and they, and they slotted it in a weird slot. It was the Midnight Madness one. It wasn't like the like the, the, the important part of the festival. It was like the midnight thing where like a bunch of people get drunk and watch a movie. Mm hmm. We premiered it there, but then it won the audience award, right? So it shocked everybody. Like, what the fuck did did they actually make, you know? And they were still hesitant. And then we won another audience award, another film festival, and then won another. We kept winning audience awards at film festivals. And um, and I think that there was still some internal debate with the movie companies because, like, if you're, like, a, a big studio, do you risk for, like, a small amount of money uh, risking people suddenly writing at you and saying you just released – the most racist movie ever, you know? So it was very, very hard to get distribution. It wasn't until YouTube came on board um, that we have distribution, but our distribution is very strange. It's like a very small theatrical release in pockets of cities that change from week to week with zero promotion, except word of mouth. That's why I am doing this podcast because I literally have no other options to uh, let people know about this movie. You know, I don't even know who the fuck you guys are. And I'm talking to you, you know, that shows you the (laughs) situation I'm at. (laughs) Well, well, I appreciate it. And I, I actually do want to organize a uh, 
a trip for the staffers at FIRE. Our headquarters is in Philadelphia. We have a remote office in Washington, D.C. I want to organize a trip for our Philadelphia staffers to go see it in Philadelphia, but it's not playing there yet. So how can we people get the movie in their theaters? Well, you've got to uh, contact Neon Rated. I don't know if that's going to help or not. They're just going to do what they do. Um, so you can go at Neon Rated on Twitter and ask them. Um, not sure that's going to do anything, quite frankly. Um, look at bodymovie.com. See if it's playing in a theater near you. On the 28th of November, it will come out on YouTube Premium. It's a subscription service, but you can sign up for free for a month and sign off if you don't like it. You know, um, The only thing that kind of sucks about it, honestly, is that I made it for artists and, uh, audience and participation. The thing that every fucking uh, film festival got wrong is that people are laughing at these racist jokes, uh, but it's actually the people being made fun of. Like literally it's black people and brown people and Asian people laughing at brown people, Asian people jokes, you know, that's the thing they completely didn't, they completely underestimated the audience, you know? And, um, and unfortunately the best way to see this is in a theater with other brown, Asian, white, black, like everybody, every race get in there and start laughing at racist jokes and get over it. You know, that's the best way to watch this. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen now. So you're going to be at home and YouTube and you're going to laugh and, and wonder is anybody else laughing too? You're never going to experience that, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting because there was a study that came out earlier this month or late last month that said that 80% of Americans hate political correctness. And they, they believe that political correctness is, quote, a problem in our country. And I think you see that reflected in the audience response to your movie. But the the suits at the, at the, uh, at the studios don't get that or they're afraid of what might happen if they do play to that 80% of the population that hates political correctness, however it defined. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, and I wish the film was as simple as that too, but as you've seen the film, uh, we also sort of slap you on the wrist for laughing at some of these jokes at some point. I, oh, you know, yeah. I, 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 look, life is complicated. Uh, there is no easy answer and things change from context to context and period to period, you know? Um, you know, as much as I, I love a good racist joke, you know, there are points where it can go too far. And that's the stuff that we explore in the movie. Like, when is it good to laugh? When is it not? I don't know, dude, but watch the movie and you tell me. Yeah. And it's a movie that begs to be seen in theaters. The rap battles are awesome. And, uh, you know, it makes sense now that you had a battle rapper help write the script. So I, I, I go see movies if there's an audio or visual reason to see it in a theater like with Dunkirk, for example, or with uh, Star is Born and with this movie. This is one that you have to see in theater. So to our listeners out there, if you can go see it, go see it. And before I sign off here, Joseph, my girlfriend asked me to ask you if the lion in the Taylor Swift Wildest Dreams music video was actually real. Dude, everything I do in those videos are real. There's nothing fake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Joseph Kahn, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And I hope the movie and the film itself do well. And if you can't see it in a theater, go see it on the 28th on YouTube. Thank you. And, and, and your audience, by the way, if I came off super arrogant in some of these answers, I apologize. Uh, I'm just very tired. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Joseph. All right. Thank you. That was Joseph Kahn, director of the new indie battle rap film Bodied playing in theaters right now and you can find out if it's playing in a theater near you by going to bodiedmovie.com and typing in your area code it will also be available to everyone on youtube premium starting november 28th the end of this month but seriously i want to reiterate this is a movie that begs to be seen in theaters as khan said he made it to be experienced with others in a theater 
and the wraps and visuals will play better with a big sound system and big screen rather than on your dust-covered 13-inch MacBook Pro, I promise you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback, and I see all of these emails. You can email us at speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show, 215-315-0100. And if you want to find Bodied or Joseph Kahn on social media, we all know Joseph loves social media. You can find them at Bodied Movie and at Joseph Kahn. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-K-A-H-N. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews, as always, help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, go see Bodied and then come back and tell us what you think. Bye.